the book of Daniel. We're going to spend about eight weeks. We're going to cover the entire book of Daniel. I'm going to be in chapter one in just a moment. You get a head start if you want to head there right now. That'd be okay. It's entitled Behind Enemy Lines. And the reason for the title, at least in terms of how it applies to our lives, is that I recognize, at least for me, I'm sure for many others of you, there is an enormous amount of pressure for us to be experts in just about every area of our lives. And for as wonderful as the information technology age is, it also has an incredible drawback, and that is there is such a wealth of information available that it makes us feel like in every area of life we should be an expert. And the pressure to be an expert can be simply exhausting. And most of us, while maybe not admitting it out loud, are kind of aware we have a sneaky suspicion that we really are just novices and amateurs, and sometimes in some areas of our life, even a hack. And it's not hard to, in the midst of that, to feel like you're failing sometimes at everything. It's easy to feel like you're failing in your marriage. When it comes to parenting, you're not doing a good job. You look at your finances at the end of the month, that isn't going so well. You look at relationships or friendships or just keeping up with all the to-do lists that are required, eating healthy, exercising, and then you come to church and you feel guilty at times for, I don't think I'm a very good Christian. And we're supposed to be an expert in all these areas, and it feels like we're not. And so sometimes that ignorance is bliss. Sometimes I think there's some truth to that. And we walk around sometimes feeling like a failure. I was Years ago, Art and Sarah Ingram used to go to this church. I think Art Ingram was the oldest guy I ever baptized. He was well into his 80s. And uh, as Art was dying in the hospital, him and his wife Sarah had been married for like 65, 66 years. And as Art was dying, I was up in the hospital visiting them. And while they were both there, I just asked Art and Sarah, I said, what's the secret to your marriage, like for this lasting over 60-something years? What's the secret to it? I thought maybe Art and Sarah would give me some romantic, you know, explanation or whatever. And they both paused for a moment, gave me the most unromantic, unromantic answer. They go, they went, well, they really didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was like, huh, all right. But they went on to elaborate that they just they lived in a day and time where divorce for them wasn't an option, not because it wasn't heard of, but simply because where were they going to go? They weren't going to be allowed to come back home. And it was one of those situations where economically they were dependent on one another. And in the end, it was Sarah's point. She just said, we were just kind of forced to work it out. <laughs> and so that's why we've been married for 60-something years. And that's a problem for me because clearly art, didn't realize that there were actually five love languages, and if he just knew Sarah's love language, they could have had a blissful marriage. Art thought he was loving his wife the best that he could, but she wasn't receiving it as love because that wasn't her particular love language. He was giving her gifts and tokens of affection, and all she really wanted was quality time and words of affirmation. Art, God rest his soul. If he'd only read Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages, he would have been an expert in marriage. And Sarah, poor Sarah, she didn't realize that Art had a love bank. And with every interaction, it was either a deposit or a withdrawal of a love chip into Art's love bank. And the currency for this love bank was his emotional needs. And here Sarah was working really hard to provide domestic order and help, but she didn't realize that domestic order and support was down on Art's list of emotional needs. What he really wanted was recreational companionship and an admiration. If only Sarah had read Willard Harley's His Needs, Her Needs she would have been an expert in marriage. See how that works? Like we know just enough to make us think that we should be experts, but for most of us secretly, we feel like the deck is just stacked against us, that we just can't catch a break. 
that were perpetually failing at this thing, even sometimes called marriage. And poor Kelly, you know those five love languages? You know what my love language is? All five of them. I am multilingual when it comes to love, and they're all mine. In terms of emotional needs, you know what my emotional needs are? All of them are. You just can't really keep up with that. You know, I thought you wanted sex. No, just hold me right now. See, that's kind of hard to, that's hard to know. Well, do, do I have to edit this for the second service? Yeah. Hey, can we talk about parenting? I mean, who in the room is a parenting expert? Except for the roamers, right? Where's, you know, I know your mom's in Africa. Where's your dad? Is he in the back with our kids? Your kids would be great when they get home because the roamers are brilliant. I don't know how they, like, they should write a book, even though we all hate them, but we wish they'd write a book. That's how it works. I think Mike Tyson had the best parenting truism there is. He says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> parenting seminar that you're going to ever have. You can read Raising Kids God's Way and What to Expect When You're Expecting, and then when it comes to parenting, when you get punched in the mouth, goodbye, and all of your expertise is right out the window. And you can read all of the mommy blogs, and they'll tell you what you're supposed to do as a parent. I mean, they go all the way back to in utero, like even to the right way to give birth, to the right way to feed, to the right way to sleep, to the right way to potty train, discipline, how much TV, what kind of TV, what kind of freedoms to give them. And listen, sometimes that might even work for your first kid, but then you have a second kid, and none of that works anymore, and all the expertise you thought you had is right out the window. And now you feel like, I'm a complete parenting failure. I don't spend enough time with my kids. I let them eat garbage. I'm not reading to them enough. I'm not pushing them into extracurricular activities enough. We know too much. And what we know is that we can't keep up, and the deck is stacked against us. So look, we go on to all the different expert categories of life. Like, don't even get us started with nutrition and exercise, right? Can I eat eggs or not? Am I, am I not allowed to eat eggs? I can't, because a new study comes out. Coffee, is it good for me, not good for me? What gives me, like, you want to eat another broth? They're right outside. Gluten this, lactose that. You know what your grandparents ate? Lard. That's what they ate. <laughs> And a lot of it. And they live to be in their 90s. My grandmother, she's in her 90s. She's been chewing tobacco her entire life. <laughs> that's a joke. That's not, that's a... <laughs> we can go to the world of your finances. And you know what happens there when you finally got to a place where you had enough income coming in. You start actually making more than the minimum payment on your credit card. And then what happened? And then your air conditioner went out. And that had to go on the card as well. And so... Listen, you start contemplating robbing a bank, and that's really tempting, but you've also watched enough episodes of Orange is the New Black, you're quite sure you're not going to make it inside prison. You're working a full-time job, but you still can't seem to get the kids what you would like to provide with them. All the while, your ex is running around giving them exactly what you'd like to. And so let me give you a little secret, if this is what's going on. Like, some of you are like, I'm thriving, fantastic. For the rest of us, we're all winging it. We're winging it at times in this marriage thing. We're winging it at times in this parenting thing, financing thing. None of us are experts. And even if we were experts, what we now have enough life experience to tell us is this. There are a lot of things that are happening that are simply outside of our control. And we don't have any control in it. It's quite possible in the realm of marriage that your spouse has decided to leave you. And you didn't see it coming. You know why you didn't see it coming? Because especially for men, you have the everything is okay syndrome, which is an actual thing that they talk about. 70% of marriages, if not closer to 80, end because the wife filed for divorce. 
it was the wife who initiated. And all the while, the man says he didn't see it coming because he thought everything was okay. And since we don't live in Afghanistan, when a wife is determined to end the marriage, you know what the husband can do about it? Nothing. Because of the nature of relationships, you're not in complete control. Or in work, how many times have you heard the story of someone putting in decades of their life in a career and in a company to only one day be sent a memo that they'd like to talk to you in the upper management offices, and there you learn that in spite of your performances and in spite of your abilities, even your loyalty and time served, they decide to sell the company and you've got three months left. Or they've downsized and your position has been eliminated. Or they're restructuring, and now on the organizational chart, you've been demoted. Like, these things are out of our control. And sometimes in health, I mean, you can eat healthy and exercise all your life, and then, boom, something happens, and you suffer something that's debilitating. I mean, even within our own church, I remember Joe and Alice Hughes, I mean, they stayed for years to go to Hawaii after he retired. Then Alice got deathly sick, and she recovered. As soon as she recovered, Joe ended up passing away. And it was just a reminder to me, man, there's so many things that happen in life that are completely out of our control. One moment you're enjoying life and everything is good. The next you're staring at a light box with scans as a doctor is trying to inform you of your diagnosis. And for most of us, we have enough life experience to feel the weight of all of this and to have that overwhelming sense that, man, I can't get ahead in spite of my best efforts. I can't catch a break. It is easy for us in life to sometimes feel like, I think I live my life behind enemy lines. And we get into that place I don't need to be an expert all of a sudden. What I'd like to do is just learn how do I live a good life? And even more than survive, how do I actually start to thrive in the midst of my current situation that really is behind enemy lines? And to that, we go to the book of Daniel. Because it's the story of a guy who truly did live behind enemy lines. And in that space, he continued to grow and to prosper and to advance. And so I want to tell you the story of the book of Daniel. It, be, it begins with knowing something about the Babylonian. Now, if you remember, just a few weeks ago, we were in the Gospel of Mark, and we were in Mark chapter 13, and we talked about it being kind of a sword, uh, sort of a weird chapter in the Gospel, but that it was ultimately referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And we talked about the Romans sieging the city and conquering the city and destroying everything in it, including the Great Temple. It was truly the most tragic day in the life and history of the Jews. And when you think of all the possible candidates for the most tragic day in the life of the Jews... That's saying something. Not least of this tragedy, tragedy was the destruction of the temple to never be rebuilt again. It forever changed the history and practice of Judaism. But if I were to tell you what the second most tragic day in the life of the ancient Jews, it would be in the year 586 B.C. Because this is the year that the Babylonians defeated Judah and destroyed the temple that was built by King Solomon. And he sent a vast number of Jews into exile. They were removed from their homeland and sent to a foreign land as slaves and as servants. And they were a conquered people, torn from their home and found themselves living in communities and cultures of their enemy. Typically, what the Babylonians would do is they would leave behind the poor or the sick or those who were of little use to the Babylonian empire and it was in this year, 586 B.C., that the greatest Babylonian king to have ever reigned besieged, defeated, and destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Jews into exile. Now, as kings of the earth go, King Nebuchadnezzar is his name, and he was a powerful king. He worshipped the god Marduk. 
He reigned for 43 years, and in that time he enjoyed a vast army of slave labor to surround his city with walls so thick that chariot races were conducted around the tops, which stretched 56 miles in length and circled an area of 200 square miles. The bricks of the walls were faced with the bright blue and bore the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This would be in modern-day Iraq, and you can still see here's the remnants of the wall that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar built. He did suffer a seven-year bout of insanity, which is actually included in the book of Daniel that nobody to this day quite understands why. But Nebuchadnezzar created a city which was not only wondrous to behold, but also a center for the arts and intellectual pursuits. He established schools, temples. It was plentiful in literacy, mathematics, and craftsmanship flourished along with a tolerance of and interest in other gods of other faiths. But to the Israelites, they were still the enemy of God's people. And the Babylonians were the oppressors. And in their oppression, there's even a song in the Psalms, Psalm 137, that speaks of being in Babylon under the hand of the oppressors in King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me read you this psalm. You can get the tone of it. It starts in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, and for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. I do not remember you if I, if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Verse 9, check this out. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's hardcore, isn't it? That's how the Israelites felt about the Babylonians. And the main character of our story, Daniel, is one of the Jews that was carried off by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. Let's hear his story and learn a few things about living behind enemy lines. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says this. It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And there he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, the only thing I want you to note here is the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. King Nebuchadnezzar won a victory, but the author of Daniel makes it very clear that it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. And God had warned his people through the prophets what was going to happen if his people did not repent. Let me just read you out of Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, this is Habakkuk. He looks around, and he sees injustice around Israel, and he thinks to himself, God, why do you let this continue on? Like, Why do you allow your people to act like this? And here's God's response. It says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if, I were, if, even if you were told, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and, feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. And so, yeah, you get the point. What God is saying to Habakkuk is, oh, no, I'm raising up the Babylonians to do this. And so Daniel, following along with that, says it was the Lord who did this. So go on to verse 3 here. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 is where I'm going to be. 
Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Here's their description in verse 4. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Now, this was a common practice for the Babylonians. Kind of think of it as the Jewish who's who, or the Jewish who's the most likely to succeed. The cream of the crop, maybe the star athlete or the valedictorian, the one with the most promise. What the king is saying is, you work for me now. And you're going to enter into Babylon University to receive a three-year degree in palace administration. Now, in reality, these aren't promising kids who are going off to college. These are kids who've probably been ripped from their homeland, who are probably wounded with PTSD from witnessing some sort of atrocity of their defeat and exile, having firsthand stories of losing a parent or a sibling or a family member or a friend at the hand of the Babylonians. And now they've been forced to leave behind everything they have ever known in their life. This isn't going to college. This is more like human trafficking in a war-torn country. And they don't view this as a golden opportunity for advancement. This is a part of a nightmare that has befallen them. They are surrounded by a majority who looks down on them, has conquered them, and nothing to them is now familiar. Not their language, not the culture, not the food, not the symbols, not the traditions. They are literally in hostile territory behind enemy lines, and the deck is stacked against them. So here's what happens next in verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And you'll find it common in the ancient Near East that a defeated enemy, if they kept you alive, you would be given a new name. And the reason why was not because they don't like your old name necessarily. It was a tactic of domination. It was stripping away your old identity and being assigned a new identity, an identity that has now been chosen by your oppressor and your captor. And I want you to know that this same tactic happens in our spirit today. And actually, it's quite prominent because you know this. If in the midst of all of your failings or negative life events that feel like sometimes they're out of our control, what happens is you start assigning yourself new names. When the marriage ends, or when you get fired, or when you've been turned down for the 20th straight time, or when your house is getting foreclosed, or your car is getting repossessed, the temptation will be to assume a new identity and a new name. And if we were being honest, most of those new names are four-letter words that we will not repeat here because we're in church. But you understand it, don't you? If you go through enough of those things, other names we assign ourselves to is, I'm a loser or I'm stupid, or I'm a failure, or I'm ugly, or I'm useless, or I'm worthless. And these are the names that come to mind when our spouse walks out, or when we get let go, or when everything around us comes crashing down. And what I would say to you is, you need to remember who you are. You'll need to remember your identity, and remember your name. 
Do not let the enemy give you a new name and reassign you an identity that is not yours. Remember, we are studying the book of what? Daniel, not the book of Belteshazzar. And when the enemy, which can sound a lot like your voice, begins to give you a new name, know that is not you. Because you're going to have to figure out how to live in these new circumstances. You are behind enemy lines. What kind of a person will you be in this new context and new environment? So let's watch what Daniel does. Let's read uh, the rest of the chapter here. Verse A is where I'm going to be. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Now hang on to that. It's very important. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now, who's at work? God's at work. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, and there's good reason for this, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And then Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate all the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them, listen to this, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, let me give you five things. We'll be done with the message. Five things out of chapter one here. How do you thrive behind enemy lines? What you could see here out of the story of Daniel, number one is this. You have to embrace the new normal. You have to embrace the new normal. And the reason why is because you have no other options. I don't want to be cliche or corny here, but I do think Rocky Balboa said it best when in life it doesn't matter how hard you get hit, it matters how hard you can get hit and keep going. And what's fascinating to me is how quickly Daniel will embrace his new normal, not because he thinks it's fair, not because he thinks it is just, not because he comes to think that it's better, not even because he decided, I like this. He embraces his new normal because he has no other choice. And if he's going to survive and even thrive and advance, he better embrace it and figure out how to live in this new normal. Now, he does have other, he has other options. Like, he could join the resistance. I mean, he could decide that the Babylonians are evil and he will not bow to the wishes and the will of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if he does that, what would probably happen? Probably his own execution. Or Daniel just missing home and missing his parents and his mom and the food he had there. He could just lay in bed sinking into depression and crying all the time. He could allow despair to so overshadow him he can't function. He could be paralyzed in the present by the sorrow of losing his past, everything he's ever known, but he doesn't. He embraces his new normal and he sets his mind to be the best Babylonian university student they had ever seen. And this is important for us. 
Because if your spouse walks out on you, what I can say is, I really am sorry. And it is tragic. And it is terrible. And don't hear me for one moment make light of it or treat it as if it's trite. But you only have a couple options here. If the marriage is over, you can either sink in depression and despair that snuffs out the light of a future, or you can recognize it and embrace it as your new normal. And you can ask the questions of, what do I need to learn about myself in this? And what do I now know that I didn't before that ensures I don't find myself in this place ever again? What do I need to do to take care of myself and ensure what moving forward and a future possibility still awaits? What pieces can I pick back up and put back together again? And where can I find healing for the wounds that have been inflicted what I didn't, that I didn't ask for? If you go to work this week and you lose your job for whatever reason, you only have a few options. You could sit at home in your sweatpants playing video games all day and drinking alcohol to numb yourself of the sting. And you could spiral into a depression especially guys who so easily receive their identity from what they do. Like if you ask a guy, well, tell me about yourself. They'll always start with what they do, always. Now you feel like a failure. Well, the job's over. This is your new normal. There isn't any begging the boss for your job back. It's been eliminated. And your ability to embrace this new normal will determine the rate of success you will have in thriving once more. And let me just say a word to those of you who are walking through the death of a spouse or a loved one. Do not hear me say, get over it. This is your new life. Grief hits everyone differently, and there's no right or wrong way to walk through it. And if it's, if it's different for every person that journeys on it, this is just hear my voice, not a call just to get over it, just a reminder that in the midst of your grief, you will still move forward. Number two, you need to be true to yourself. Number one, embrace your new normal. Number two, be true to yourself. Now, Daniel embraced his new normal, but he did so clearly knowing who he was. He was not about to betray the essence of who he was. He was a Jew. Now, I might be a Jew who's now living in Babylon. I might be a Jew who's now working for the king of the Babylonians, but I'm still a Jew. And what that means is, for Daniel, I'm still eating kosher. Don't bring that pork tenderloin over here and expect me to eat it. This isn't who I am, and I will not violate a core principle of my identity. And just because you need a job doesn't mean that you are going to sell yourself out to an illegitimate business that's really scamming people because that's not who you are. And just because you're going to move forward in, in a dating relationship doesn't mean you're going to sell out the core of who you are, your primary identity, to get someone to like you or to be with you or to fill the void that will ultimately be lacking. Now is not the time to let the diagnosis make you quit. It's not who you are. I'm not saying you won't get tired or that you won't get exhausted to a greater frequency or that you'll have to manage some greater limitations, but you're not quitting. And if the doctor tells you to eat this, you'll eat that. And if the doctor tells you to get this amount of exercise because it will help you deal with the pain, then you're going to get that much of exercise. And the reason why is that's your true self. And you're not going to sell out your convictions and principles now because your situation is tough. It'll be tempting to do so. You'll have shortcuts presented to you that will look like a quicker path that might alleviate the pain. I just want you, there are no shortcuts. Do not forget who you are. But number three, watch what Daniel does. He trusts God with the outcome. Daniel ultimately has no idea what's going to happen to him. There's no guarantee here at all. And we'll see this next week. King Nebuchadnezzar is the most erratic and violent man. It could be, he, he could be displeased with the smallest thing from Daniel, and that would be it. And Daniel has to embrace not only his new normal, being true to himself, but to trust God that he will provide an outcome. 
and God does. God comes through. Now, if you'll notice, he doesn't change his environment. Daniel's still in Babylon, but while in that environment, God allows him to thrive and to prosper in his new normal. And sometimes faith requires you to wake up, get out of bed, and trust that by the time you get back into bed, that God would have showed up and did something. And you might have to do that in faith for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and sometimes years. But wherever you find yourself behind enemy lines, it is I have to trust God for the outcome of this. Number four, think pragmatically and strategically. Think pragmatically and strategically. Watch the cool negotiation that takes place between Daniel and the court official. Because I don't blame Ashpenaz at all. Like, he knows if you guys look, like, unhealthy or you look skinnier or not as, as healthy as the other, like, it's my head on the line. And watch what Daniel does. Daniel just says, just give me 10 days. Just test us for 10 days. This is what you call thinking strategically and pragmatically. If you just lost your job, it's time to be strategic and pragmatic. You could trust God and have all the faith in the world and still move with strategy and pragmatism. What network do you need to do? What, what, needs to, you, what do you need to look over in terms of your resume? What training do you need to acquire to set yourself up for other employment? Who do you need to call to as a favor? Look, don't blast that on Facebook. That's not strategic. Don't send out just a general plea for help. Think. Be strategic. Be pragmatic. Who is in a position that can help you in this present moment? If you know Mark Zuckerberg, then you should call Mark Zuckerberg. Finally, number five, outwork everyone else around you. Outwork everyone else around you. And this is what Daniel and, his, and, and the others did. Like, you might not ever want to go back to retail again. Like you left that thought, oh, I'm never working that again, and here you are working retail. I get it. That might not be where you want to be. That isn't where Daniel wants to be. But while you are in retail, you're going to be the best in retail that there is. I know it can suck to feel like you're starting all over again, maybe that low person on the totem pole, but you will at least be the hardest working person on that totem pole. So you didn't get into the college you were hoping to get into. What you'll be is the hardest working student in the college that you're going to. And you'll make that other college jealous of your success that you will not be among their number of alumni. You'll out-hustle them all. Listen to what it says in verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And in the end, the result is living in God's favor, even when you're behind enemy lines. You aren't where you want to be, but you still need to succeed even in that space. Verse 17, it said to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And you need to know this, you won't always be living behind enemy lines. But the formation that you receive in that context can quite possibly set you up to a greater life than you could ever imagine without spending that time behind enemy lines. Don't forget how the chapter ends. Verse 21 says... And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know what that means? Daniel didn't live behind enemy lines forever. And when he moves into his moment, he will take with him a wealth of knowledge and life experience, and it will set him up for success. And if you find yourself behind enemy lines, consider these five things. 
to thrive and to advance. And know in faith, you will not always be there. You will not always be behind enemy lines. That God will prove himself faithful. So what we're going to do now is we're going to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness at these tables. We're about to take communion, and it's an open communion, which means everyone in the room is welcome to join us. And so if you feel moved, what will happen is we'll pray here, and then we'll uh, all come to the front and receive the body and the blood is what's the symbols of the of a little piece of bread, a little piece of cup of grape juice to remind us of God's faithfulness through his son Jesus. And as we do that, may wherever you find yourself, whatever environment, whatever setting, whatever context, may it be for you that moment where you reconnect once again and commit yourself to being true to your true identity that you found at this table in the person of Jesus. Let's pray together.